This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christians. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD, along with our guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. So welcome back to The Cartographers. We have Sarah Billups here with us. She is a Seattle-based author, and she's currently working on her Doctor of Ministry degree in the Sacred Art of Writing at the Peterson Center for the Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary. And today we're going to talk about her book called Orphaned Believers, How a Generation of Christian Exiles Can Find Their Way Home. So Sarah, we're really excited to have you. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. It's really fun to talk to you both. And Ashley, I have to say, every time someone reads my Western program and I hear Doctorate of Ministry, I think demon. Then I think of my kids just howling with laughter because they say mom's getting a demon. Yeah. And so it never it never gets old. I'm doing a demon now. And I just started telling people that I'm doing a doctorate because, and I don't even correct them when they ask, uh, say, refer to it as a PhD because... <laughs> Because of what you're saying, when people are like you have a demon, what do you what do you mean you're getting a demon? So. Totally, yep. It's a, a practitioner's doctorate. That's, that's cool. Wow, yeah. That's so great. it's I'm I've got about a year left in the program. It's been awesome. But I'll always be the demon mom to my kid. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyways, moving on. Well, Sarah, uh, thanks so much for talking to us today. We're really excited to uh, talk about your book, and you're writing about, in many ways, the the disconnect between uh, kind of uh, a boomer influenced Christianity and one in which younger Christians or even those who have left the faith, you know, are, are struggling to reconcile faith and culture. I, I felt like reading your book. Uh, you and I probably grew up in similar church environments. I, I definitely grew up in a uh, sort of a boomer-driven megachurch context. Um, and now I'm the pastor in a very uh, different sort of church. But I've also just finished preaching a sermon series talking about generational identity and what does it look like for generations to uh, be on mission together uh, at the church I pastor now. So let's just dive into that a little bit. I mean, give us a th- maybe the 30,000-foot view. How do you see this generational disconnect between baby boomers, Gen Xers, and millennials? Yeah, you know, that's really how my my mind snaps. Like the the research around, I put on my journalism hat and the, the really research pieces around generations was really fascinating. And so I tried to, I tried to write about generational differences in the church with, with some nuance and tenderness and an admission that certainly there are many exceptions to the rule and it's not, depending on age, certain beliefs. But there are, are clear through lines that that I think that we can see between the generations. I mean, certainly. So my, my dad um, grew up um, in a Reformed Jewish household in Indiana, but converted to Christianity pretty radically in the 70s. And he was saved 
um, the Bible was was on his bedside table next to the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And so the kind of culture wars of that time, the through line for him to faith was also one of a lot of kind of fear end times rhetoric, talk about the end of the world. And that really mirrored what was going on in a broader sense culturally with the Cold War, the Russian threat, apocalyptic movies and narratives and broader culture outside of the church. And so when I was coming up, I was really raised, like I write about in the first part of the book, with a lot of kind of end times narrative, like many of my peers, um, fearing that the rapture would come before I was able to get married or have a family. And then, you know, uh, my husband and I moved to Seattle about 20 years ago, and that was in the height of the missional church era and the emergent church. And, you know, we were really interested in intentional community or co-housing. Tim Keller was really talking about about returning to the city and Redeemer was really coming up. And so we really caught that wave. And then that's certainly been an interesting kind of experiential time in the church in the early 2000s that then has slowly kind of withered, especially as cultural complications have, have risen. You're, uh, you're narrating so much of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Some of the specifics are different, but a lot of, yeah. the, uh, a lot of the big rocks are, are there for sure. Yeah. Bryce, were you an end times kid as well? Or is that well, a whole other, you know, whole other story? So I, I would say that the church environment that I grew up in was more of the like uh, 80s mega church movement. Um, and so I think what it did was it, it tempered a little bit of the end time stuff because there was kind of this like, don't make it weird um, <laughs> metric that everything was filtered through so i think theologically you know the, the end time stuff was still there like end but it was times co- light like a, end times light it's like yeah it was like it was like we definitely believe the rapture could happen any minute but don't make it weird <laughs> because it was secret like a seeker sensitive environment yes, it sounds like yeah exactly. oh for sure yeah yes uh we could talk all the time about all the weird culture things growing up right in the 90s but um one element of, you know, this kind of disconnect generationally that you talk about, Sarah, um, stems from these sorts of culture wars. And, you know, as um, Bryce and I are, we're trying to start a think tank called Willowbright Institute. And we are really concerned in the same ways that you talk about in your book about this kind of generational shifts, um, particularly in the 90s. So, you know, interestingly, the idea of culture wars was coined by James Davison Hunter, um, who wrote a great book called To Change the World. And he, they write about this idea um, about this, this term, culture wars. They, they say that not since the Civil War has there been such fundamental disagreement over basic assumptions about truth freedom and our national identity. And I thought those those three things as this is the advanced studies and culture, which is where Hunter works. And I love that they brought out those three things, truth, freedom, and national identity, kind of like chess pieces of a culture war. Um, and so as you think about your father's story, as you think about your own story, how are we understanding those three terms? What does truth look like? What does freedom look like? What is national identity like? And then you know, what is what are some of the sources or backgrounds um, of those kind of identity markers that then really turn into culture war? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's an awesome question. Um, I, I know it's that, like that's like a whole nother book, I realize, but it's really it, it, it's really a cool frame. I mean, I think that for my dad's generation and, you know, I mean, Bryce, you mentioned megachurch. We grew up in a non-denominational um 
suburban church in Indiana that had maybe a thousand families. So it was a little, maybe 500 to a thousand. So a little bit smaller, but certainly of the same flavor and variety. But when I think about, I'm just going to go kind of with my first thought about truth with, with the way I was raised really is about literalism. It is about a literal interpretation of the Bible and, uh, cessationism that spiritual gifts likely ended you know after the first church that that was for a reason and a time it is a skepticism of of what we cannot plainly see or read so that means that that was really just a way i think to end reinforce some of my dad's end times theology but for for us and our family truth was really it shouldn't be mysterious it should not be hidden it should not be liturgical or mysterious Lament doesn't really have rumor make sense because we should be joyful and eagerly anticipating a quick return of Jesus to kind of jet us away. So, so truth was very much uh, connected to what what was plain, what could be understood plainly, um, and freedom was was certainly without question wed to politics and to America, our American identity. Um, and it was something that there was never a question. It was certainly a given that as much as our identity was to be evangelical, our identity was to be Americans and citizens and patriots. And, you know, I think that a lot of us conflate patriotism and nationalism because they sound really similar. But, you know, I just mean we, I was taught to have a love of country and that is a good thing. I consider myself a patriot. But I was also I was also intuitive in a kind of lighter sense that that meant that I would have certain political views and that. God had a special blessing or has a special blessing on America. So, so politics for us was, was very closely wedded to a certain political party. And then tell me your, tell me the third, is it identity? Um, national identity. So you've really national. kind of, you know, I in some ways, it's probably, but I think they really did kind of conflate, um, you know, and so given kind of that, that reality, what, um, what might you just say to younger generations, um, Gen Xers, millennials, Gen Z coming up, how how are we kind of untangling those three things, right? That truth, freedom, and national identity in ways that, like you say in the subtitle of your book, you're saying, you know, for Christian exiles to actually find their way home. So you're not saying, hey, this is all wrong and just go find your happiness on Oprah. Well, totally. Yep. So when I think about, um, you know, when I use the term orphaned believer, I just, I'm just thinking about any Christian looking around the American church and having trouble finding Jesus. And so I might mean that you know, culturally, that could be if you live in a city like mine in Seattle, I know you guys lived on the West Coast for a time in California, just if you live in a progressive space where it's less common to identify as a Christian, there's a certain exhaustion that can come with explaining what that means. Or if you live in the Bible Belt where I grew up, it might be harder to, you might feel an alienation from kind of broader Christian culture, radio stadium tours. There may be a lack of mystery or nuance or aesthetic. And then there's also this idea of being orphaned spiritually, where folks can't square our reading of the gospel with what we're seeing in the church. And so I think that looking at generations coming up and how to untangle some of these pieces, I mean, I think that there's something about authority. And when I think of truth, I think about the idea of submitting to the authority of Christ and how that word is very uncomfortable and almost countercultural, because we're really trained as consumers and as individuals to kind of chart our own course and destiny. But if there's a sweetness and a goodness in that truth, there's a real freedom that can come. Um, and then when I think about some of the other pieces, national identity and freedom, I, again, I think about how 
a lot of young people are leaving the church because they're looking around and not seeing space for nuance and how there's a real opportunity to remind folks that the church is just the gathered body of believers. The church is what Christ left us with. Um, And so I have a lot of hope and I would offer a lot of encouragement to folks coming up to look around and say, like, we still need the church to kind of counteract some of the forces that are trying to shape us from the outside in instead of the inside out as a sort of fortification or a vitamin um, to help us to kind of have some unity and protection. And so I think that that means that the church or community is something to take seriously and to be committed to. And if we can, to work to change from within. Yeah. It, it sounds like, I mean, one of the tragedies, I think, of this whole thing, is, it, the culture war really is about the conflation of um, kind of truth, freedom, national identity with Christianity, right? And so, correct me if I'm wrong here, but at some at some level, I want to say, we're not necessarily pushing back against the political views as much as we are pushing back against the conflation of them with, with Christianity and the untangling of that gets really confusing. Um, and often it's easier to just chuck the whole thing rather than do the hard nuanced work of disentangling. uh, Yep. That's a, that's a great point. That's, I mean, that is, that is exactly right. I mean, it is easy to bring right critique to any political party. I think that um, the church has had plenty of failings in history. And I, there's this way when, you know, we were coming up in the 80s and 90s, there was this feeling that I had that that things had always been this way. I mean, it really, I mean, Jimmy Carter was a Southern evangelical Democrat. Like it really wasn't until the Reagan administration and the rise of the moral majority when certain issues that I thought had always, always, always been true, um, really became solidified. And so I think that looking back, you know, I think that we can look back because there's a a way to kind of give context and a little bit more, um, I don't know if reassurance is the right term, but that it has not, it, we, where we are going does not have to be where we have always been. But but certainly the making of the myth that Republic, that a certain political party is, is, totally um, wed with with Christianity is ridiculous. But I also clearly think that that means holding all parties into account and finding a way of orthodox, faithful, moving forward together. And you're right. that's a, It's a lot easier to opt out and to put your hands in the air than to sit down and roll up your sleeves and do that work. Hey, let me ask this question. And this, this might go nowhere. And if it does, we'll just cut it out. <laughs> Nobody hear, will hear this. But since you mentioned... Um, you know, you've you've mentioned kind of the, the '80s uh, Reagan, but you also referenced a, a minute ago. Uh, you talked about the Cold War, and I, I kind of have this I, this idea that I've been curious about. It it seems like something dramatically changes at the end of the Cold War, and I think that um, outside of the church, that American culture didn't really grapple with the Cold War coming to an end. And I actually wonder if that's heightened some of the culture war uh, mindset that we are living through now, because I think there was a, a much clearer sense of right or wrong during during the Cold War. I, 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 I'm, you know, I'm not saying that blanket, to- but like there was this sense of there's a side that's, well, I'll just leave it at that. Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Is that? Does that resonate at all or... 
you know, that's that's really interesting. I th- I think that you're right. It did seem clearer or plainer that there was sort of a a clear right or wrong. Yeah, there was less there was less nuance, and I think there's something. I think that simplicity is really can be really clarifying, but also I think the invitation of nuance can also bring a healthy kind of accountability. And so I almost wonder, I almost wonder, I think you can play it out different ways. But, you know, like when the Berlin Wall fell, I remember I was a, I was a teenager. I remember the night it happened and we ordered a piece of the wall off. There was like a TV, <laughs> order a piece for your home. And so when it came, I was really bummed because it didn't have like spray paint on it and it could have been, could have been any piece of wall. But it, there was such a pregnancy to that moment. I just remember it so clearly, like seeing the night it was night in Berlin and all these kids like climbing on top of the wall. And I thought, think like things are changing. There was a real optimism. So I do think when it first, when, and I guess maybe officially a year later, you know, um, the Cold War officially ended. I'm not sure what the date was, but I do think that at that moment, even as a kid or a teen, I could pick up on some optimism or like unity, or we were working together for a cause and it's happened. But pretty quickly after that, it seemed to it seemed to kind of dismantle. And then very quickly, it seemed like a lot of people in my church and around me were really focused on on Bill Clinton and Hillary and Monica Lewinsky. Like, I think culture words pretty quickly, like new ones kind of like uh, crept in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like this sense of there's a clear enemy who must be exposed at all costs was then transferred to whatever the issue of the moment is. And so nuance is kind of lost. So which kind of gets to this next thing I was going to ask you about. Um, you, you, you talk about, um, you know, w- one thing that you talk about leaders being able to do in a, in a culture war context is build wells and not fences. And um, it's this idea of like a bounded set versus a centered set. Could you maybe just, unpack that for for our listeners who aren't um familiar with that metaphor but th- could you just like tell us what does that actually look like practically like how do we do that yeah sure that's great um so that's something that um that john harrelson who's the pastor at grace seattle where i've been at church for a long time talked about one sunday and i think it's it's I don't even know if he knew some kind of Irish proverb, but there's some sort of roots that listeners may know of the actual idea of building wells, not fences, but it was really about. It's funny because I can think um, of like two keep, other sources where I may have heard that from. Yeah, totally. It's, I think it's a pretty, I think it's pretty widely used metaphor. Um, but the idea that with hurting, with caring for animals or livestock, instead of literally fencing them in to build a, 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 a drinking source or a food source in the middle to, to attract them and keep them without having to sort of bound them. And so, you know, the metaphor of the church is just that we want to be a church or a group of people that um, are living set apart lives, are living authentically and are, are trying to live the best that we can, um, modeling the life and values of Jesus as a, as a magnet to draw other people in, doing that work quietly and not with a microphone but to say like this is our lives have been changed everything is different now that we're following jesus it's not any easier or sexier but it's really beautiful and so the idea of that being like a magnet to like draw curiosity and and to include people as opposed to um putting down kind of flags in the in the ground over certain culture or issues or you know wherever your political or social flag may kind of be stuck in the ground, instead of like marking those territories and saying this is who we are and what we stand for, and if you're not within this this kind of like area, this in this certain fence, then 
then then we're going to try to keep you here. And so it's just a, a really freeing and liberating way to think about modeling the church and the message of Jesus. You know, um, being married to a pastor, and obviously you guys have been in ministry as well, um, in lots of different contexts. As we, as you think about that metaphor of wells versus fences, so many leaders I know are just like when they try to do that are like battered down by everyone else who's kind of like pick a side, right? Or you have, you know, if you're actually talking about this life-giving force of the gospel, then they're like, well, wait a second, you know, have you transgressed that boundary, whatever that boundary is? What encouragement would you have for kind of be bedraggled <laughs> leaders in the church to keep going? And yeah, that's so good. Providing that water. You know, I, the way I talk about it at Grace I mean, is, is that we've experienced kind of like a pressing. That's just, I just have this like image of like literally like kind of pressing in. Um, because the thing that I'd always said about where I've gone to church for almost 20 years, the thing I love to say is, oh, Grace is this church where people from both sides of the aisle politically with different opinions on social issues can all come together on Sunday. It's this really beautiful picture of folks meeting across difference. But the truth is, after, I mean, you know the list, after the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd and the, the you know, vaccines and masks and, and everything else that's happened in the last few years, um, we have certainly, like many churches, lost people because we might talk about social justice one Sunday and that feels too progressive, or we might not be talking about social justice enough and so that feels too conservative. I mean, people have really have really left. And that's compounded by folks having spiritual crisis, leaving church, or practically just moving to different places because Seattle's expensive. And so there has not been anything, there has not been any security gained for the budget. There's not been any um, kind of reassurance of, of growth or a tactic. Like that kind of posture for a pastor and a leadership team, I'm on the vestry, is a real tender like place to open your hands and say, God, we're trying to be faithful. And so however however that brings us ahead however small or however however much we grow like we just want to be faithful and and it is it has been really difficult so my i guess my encouragement would be one if that's where you are church leader you're certainly not alone think of a church in seattle that's navigating those same waters and two the kind of um reinforcement of like closeness and beauty in the community that we formed for the families that are committed it's just really, really sweet and like nothing we've experienced before. So there almost has been this kind of flip side of like a real closeness and solidification of folks who are there. Um, and it's in many ways the healthiest I think our church has ever been. So we're certainly not larger, but I think healthier. Yeah. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. There's so many, you know, biblical metaphors, right, about fruitfulness and pruning. And you're like, oh, this is what it feels like. <laughs> For sure. It kind of hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But um, I'd like to, to 
to switch gears a little bit and talk about yet another hard subject, um, trauma. Um, you talk about trauma and you talk about it interestingly in that the legacies of one generation can be the next generation's trauma. And I was like, ooh. Um, so I'd love to unpack that a bit. How do we think about that word trauma? Sometimes in at least social media spheres, it can it feels like everyone's using the word. And then you're like, are we actually, is this really trauma or is this just hard stuff and we don't know how to deal with hard stuff and suffering? Um, so help us understand how you're thinking about trauma and then how you're thinking about what that looks like generationally and, and how that gets either passed on or, you know, one's success can actually be someone else's trauma. Yeah. I mean, so if I think about trauma medically, you know, there's certainly like complex traumas that come from come from serious events that can happen in somebody's life um, from abuse or, or many things. And then I think about there being a single situation, um, a single incident, like a, a, an incident of like acute or, or, or specific trauma. And then there's like chronic trauma that's repeated over and over again. And so if I think about those buckets, I'm really honing in on generational kind of chronic trauma, which can be low, I think low grade. But the thing it's interesting to talk about because it's such a, it's such a personal kind of internal process as well that you're right, Ashley has been, I agree, like so totally buzzified. I mean, if you hear the word there, and I, I, it's so interesting how words can become watered down or, or certainly politicized because if somebody uses that word in a certain way, we might assume other things about how they would view various culture war issues. It's very interesting. But if I really think about like my own experience um, growing up with my dad that did from a really young age instill a lot of fear in me about whether or not I was going to make it to heaven, if I was going to start a career or a family or be raptured. And really, the other thing that really came up for me trauma-wise, and this is such a universal thing, and again, it's so light, but a real, it's light to talk about, but hard to feel, a real curiosity, like, did I make it in the book of life? Like, laying in bed at night asking for Jesus to come in my heart for days and weeks and months and years. What did I do enough? Um, was really was really difficult to work through. But it's like, there's this part where I talk about my dad. It's like, I think it's called, stock, the section's called Stockholm Syndrome. Like, have I sided it with my oppressor? I've ha, Has my dad been the person that has brought me up into the faith and passed this beautiful faith to me, but also has done a lot of harm along the way? That's just real human complicated stuff. And so I think that when I process the trauma of it, I try to do it with um, a tenderness towards myself and to him, which some of us just can't do for various reasons. But the other thing that I would say, the other sort of twist post-publication of Orphan Believers is that my dad's um, read the book and it's been a very interesting, um, very surprising experience. I think that it's really helped him kind of see the situation a little bit differently and been very healing for us personally. So interestingly, with trauma, I think sometimes it can take a long time. I'm in my mid-40s, and this happened when I was a kid. So I think even decades later, there can be some some healing. So it's been actually a, a really sweet time with us and our, our relationship. Yeah, I was actually just thinking as you were talking, I was wondering if, you're, if your dad was still living, if he's read the book. Um, yeah, right. yes. My dad has a, um, he has multiple myeloma, so it's a treatable but not curable kind of cancer. And um, when he was diagnosed, it was, uh, yeah, we really weren't sure if he'd live to see the publication. So it was very, very cool that I had a book launch um, a couple weeks ago and he was able to be there. So I brought him up to the front and everybody clapped. It was just like a very sweet moment. Um, 
So really so grateful that he's here. Yeah. So on the topic of trauma, it seems like one of the challenges, and again, this goes back to the nuance thing that we're talking about a minute ago, is uh, to um, both acknowledge real and specific instances of trauma um, with, while not then saying everything is trauma, <laughs> right? And it, it seems like we want to fall on one side of that camp or the other, like everybody stop talking about trauma and nobody's a victim. You know, that's one approach or everything is trauma and, you know, being expected to show up at work on time is traumatic. And, you know, how can you treat me that way? I mean, how, how, how are you thinking about just even talking about that dynamic? Yeah. I, that's a great question. I, I think that we have to talk about it. Well, I guess I think that the first thing I would say is to, to try not to talk about it publicly until there's been a lot of time for discernment and reflection. I think that when we process out loud, especially on social media, like you mentioned, Ashley, I think um, I think that that's possibly therapeutic, but usually doesn't really help and and tends to tends to sometimes be counterproductive. So I think that um, I think that there's a lot of wisdom towards discernment, um, towards doing work privately and and quietly. I don't, I'm not talking about accountability. I think there are times when there are wrongs that are done systemically that need to be called out because we love the church and we want it to be preserved. I just mean in terms of your individual place with what may have happened in your life. Um, I think that that's work I've tried to do um, through writing, through processing and journaling quietly, um, to being careful to, but the other thing is to not, the other line would be to not isolate. So if I'm working through something that's happened to me in my life, I try to be accountable to a community or a church community. And this just makes me think of something else I mentioned earlier. And I think it's related is that when I, I think, and I, so I don't mean this theologically. I think that we're as Christians have a conversion experience, either a moment or series of moments. And that's very important and key. But I do think that as a kid being asked, asking Jesus in my heart every night, there was this sort of frenetic feeling that I have to keep doing more and more, and I want to make sure I'm okay. There's this sort of individual need to make sure that you're all right and going to be okay. Um, and I think that in health, the church can, we can carry each other. Like there's been times when Drew, my husband, has carried me through seasons of doubt or grief or processing trauma, and that I've done that for him. And I think trusted people can do that too. So I think an, another important part is to be do internal work, but not to do that in an isolated way, but to be very careful about how you speak about that publicly. Yeah. So part of the the challenge then is like the individualistic nature of, of our culture. And so often um, that work is not being done in community. And really that's what the, that's uh, like the church is there um, to carry each other in these moments. So another dynamic though, that I want to ask you about is for the leader, for the pastor, part of, you know, part of my job is to, uh, to stand up and, um, explain the Bible to people. And sometimes that means, I mean, I was just even last night talking with some people about Paul in Acts 17 and it's this famous passage and Paul, uh, kind of, um, reasoning with the philosophers in Athens and the Areopagus, but he gets to, um, he calls them to repent and follow Jesus. And uh, we were just talking about how rare it is, actually, I think, to hear a um, 
invitation to repentance now. Um, when we think about trauma, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you talk to the leader who says, when I'm explaining the Bible to people and it's, it's correcting a way of life, it's calling people to repent. You have no right. That's you're, you're actually inflicting trauma on somebody mm. by mm. holding that invitation out. Yeah, that's really tough. Um, that's that is really, really tough. <laughs> that's my answer. No, I think that um, I think that I what I would what I would say is we are called as people that are following Jesus and in some pastoral role, either in the head of a church or just in community with other people. If we're mentoring people, that we we are called to faithfulness and to truth telling with with tenderness and kindness and that there has to be room for the holy spirit to work and to convict and come in and so i think that i would probably tell the the pastor or leader like like be faithful and do your best and there there may be various responses from people <laughs> um sometimes it could be the opposite when there's just a surprising and radical like change or repentance or understanding, you know, like there can be a powerful flip side of that. But if you're hearing people say that they're not ready or who are you to say that, then I think that's just the time to give spaciousness. I mean, if we have the gift of, of life being long, I think that that means that we can just pray silently for that person or be available, but to not take it personally and to be really tender and gentle. I think that there's a way to speak with tenderness and gentleness, but also conviction and truth. And that's a very fine line to walk that I don't know that many of us can do very well. And that, again, is another time I think we need to call on the Holy Spirit to give us the words. Man, right? Jesus is right when he talks about it being an actual narrow way, <laughs> a narrow path that few people can find. Um, goodness. Um, I just am struck more and more the older I get how how narrow <laughs> it is in, in the truest sense, not narrow-minded. Um, but um, hard, hard going, um, for sure. Yeah. I was just reading this now and quote my friend Drew Brown shared about, it was before he went to the monastery and he, there's this quote where he says, I realized that I, you know, was spending a lot of time talking about Christ, writing about, <laughs> writing about faith. Was I doing those things more than actually internalizing them or like living them? I just butchered that. That, that was not a quote. That was a summary. That was very convicting for me as a person that just brought a book into the world, married to a pastor, somebody on the vestry of my church. Like it is so easy for us to do this work and to even benefit from this work in whatever way. Our egos are very active things, you know, and then to, to look back and think, have I been, have I missed the main point, you know, with my own kids or my own self? So I've been really convicted through this process about that narrow, narrow road too, in a different way even. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's really good. It is true. And this is all God's kindness to us <laughs> in, in, in fashioning us, even if it feels a little uncomfortable. Amen. Um, <laughs> but you do talk, and I think this is helpful, what you just said to our next point is, is you talk about consumerism, right? A, a lot in the book as another factor. Um, and often when we think you write about therapeutic consumerism, which I thought oh, was such a good little phrase there, but you know, it, it's the idea behind it is that you, you write that there is no nutrition in self curation. And I was like, Oh, so good. It's empty calories, right? Yeah. To self curate. <laughs> totally. Um, and of course, you know, I have this great, I have this book that I, 
I'm excited to pick it up called The Influencer Industry about authenticity and social media. But I want to think about what you're, you're talking about here is there's no nutrition in self-curation. And often we see self-curation online, um, the sort of self-help Instagram posts that kind of poses Christian content, we'll say. Um and I've been thinking a lot about this word and idea of the therapeutic. And there's so much on social media that really is this sort of self-soothing, um, numbing effect. And yet, if we, like both of us are writers and you have to have an online presence and churches have to have an online presence, um, what might we do differently to not fall into that sort of therapeutic consumerism? Oh, it's so good. I mean, Ashley, I I'm so excited about this question. I could talk about it all day. So I'm trying to think about the best way to dive in. But yeah, I mean, you know, Orphaned Believers was my first book. And so I had to walk through this whole process for the first time. And I've, I've learned a lot. I think that the, the kind of, if there was a, a blueprint of what to do and how to connect with people as a faith-based writer on social media, it often overlaps with therapeutic language because we're trying to not just be... Um, somebody with ideas, we're trying to encourage and we're trying to build community. It is good to encourage. It is good to build community. It is good to, to write and share those thoughts online. But going back to the narrow road again, it is so hard to not let your ego creep in, to not let a post and its success kind of make your ego rise or fall. Um, how, how you remove yourself from the process, um, I don't know if it's possible. I know when I see it in other people, I mean, there's this, I write in the book about this um, op-ed that was in the New York Times by the writer Lee Stein talking about um, kind of like pseudo church on Instagram, like various self-help writers, usually women, that use like therapeutic language and very encouraging language to help women feel inspired and find community. But, you know, she writes that she was looking through one of these one of these folks post and somebody said, I finally feel like I finally feel seen or accepted. And there was no reply because, of course, there can't be because this the the Stein is essentially saying, I think we need something like church, right? Like, I think that we really need community in real life with real people. And so trying to figure out how to do that in a way that's honest is hard. But what I would what I would say to folks that are on the same journey we are is that um, being really clear up front and saying, I'm here for a couple of reasons. I'm hoping to write a book and to engage with folks about these ideas. Um, and um, I have to do this because it's part of what you do when you publish a book. I think that pulling the curtain back is a really good thing to do um, and helps to helps to kind of let folks know that you're not playing a game. Um, and I think that that's, that's the best. And I also, the other thing that I would say is talk to people in your real life. You know, like I said to my friends before I started to try to grow an online in Instagram following, like, hey guys, tell me if I seem gross or weird or like my ego is just, like, check, check me, give me some accountability. And they did. And that, that was really great too. So. I, I, I have to say, I think just listening to, to the way you responded to that is so interesting because as somebody who's, who's not a woman, like th there is something that feels very uh, female centric about the kind of uh, Instagram influencer world. But, and it, some of it is that it does feel kind of contrived and it feels like the, you know, like everybody's a hot mess and it's like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, I, I like that idea of like pulling back the curtain and just being honest about the fact that uh, part of 
why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I'm writing a book and I'd like to sell it to people. Yeah, that's great. It, I think it is refreshing. And you're right. It is it is interesting. You know, in, in The Preacher's Wife, Kate Bowler talks about being at this conference and she and she chats with the speaker before stage who says, you just need four tragedies in life. And that's like enough enough kind of fodder for, for a career worth of books. You know, it's like, I think as a woman in this world, typically like the formula is something hard happens and that's what you write about in a narrative nonfiction way, which is memoir, but you just call it narrative nonfiction because <laughs> memoir doesn't sell. And then you add some sort of application. And that's just a, when you see that formula, it just begins to feel inauthentic and common. And so I, I think that there's invitation for those of us writing in this space to do that differently and think about it differently. Amen. Amen. There's <laughs> <laughs> second amen of the, of yeah. the recording. It's <laughs> yeah. good. Um, so yeah, where, so, you know, not to put it on your shoulders, but you know, where do we go from here? So if we have these kind of self-curated online spaces that are detached from local communities often that kind of are self-soothing, um, we have kind of all this baggage maybe of the culture wars. Um, we have serious doubt and ways that the church has failed institutionally um, in America. What do we do? Where do we go from here? Yeah. I mean, I, where, where I went and where I think a lot of us are going is to just really doubling down on, on being well-formed on spiritual formation, you know, and those are those are beautiful, quiet, often hidden practices that I think are quite an anecdote to very public facing social media and culture war issues that, you know, I also think of practical service and quiet work. And I, I've mentioned my mother-in-law a few times in talking about the book, but she lives in Baltimore, goes into the city every week, volunteers, making food for people, was with her neighbor at the hospital for an overnight who needed to go to the ER the other week. Like, my mother-in-law will never be a headline getting like Southern Baptist makes casserole unless it's like the onion or some kind of parody site. My mother-in-law will not be breaking news that the cultural issues we hear about are the headline grabbing issues, but there's something so hidden and beautiful about that faithfulness. And really it, no matter where the Amer the state of the American church, that kind of quiet, ordinary hard work is, is, is really reassuring to me. Um, but I think that, going back to formation, it grounds us in the love of Jesus that tells us to not be afraid, to be, to move into the world, to be into the world, but not of it, um, to work for the flourishing of this place while we're here, to be present, you know? And I think it's a real anecdote to the end times culture. I came up hearing that the world is about to end, so let's just make sure we're okay and, and, and get ready. It's like, let's actually be here and be present. And I think that formation is also an anecdote to culture wars because we have such a tendency to make a straw man on either side of the aisle, but it's this real way to bring in nuance and to say we have a responsibility for each other as each other's keeper. And then with the with the online stuff and the consumerism, I think we're so likely to be swept away by the market and by maybe one more green juice will get us a little closer to our best life ever. Like it's just I really think we are. And so I think there's a real reassurance that the teachings of Christ, like the simple good nutrition of that work of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just a beautiful anecdote to the kind of buzzing market that tells us we're so close to being actualized, which is a myth. Sarah, um, 
as we just are kind of wrapping things up here, I feel like the word, and I don't know if that you've said this, but the, the word that comes to mind is the word patience. Um, so much of, of what you're talking about is uh, following Jesus patiently and trusting that he knows what he's doing. And um, I think that that's really helpful and an important reminder because, and maybe this is a, is a, a product of kind of the, the, the culture war and the time period that we've been talking about. But I think what that means is that like doing what we're doing faithfully, it might not work. If what we mean by work is, you know, being phenomenally successful very quickly. And, you know, there, there is that to go back to the social media thing, there is a, a formula for like, how do you grow that phenomena or th- that following very quickly um, t- taking the, the, the route of patient faithfulness, it might not have that same result, and yet that's okay. Um, but it's, but it's important that we have kind of fellow journeyers to remind us, I think along the way. And so I think that's a lot of what you've done, uh, with us today. And just want to thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. This has been such a lovely conversation. I appreciate you both, and I really appreciate your work. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. The Cartographers is hosted by Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales. It's edited by Nathan Michelle. The Cartographers is a production of Willowbray Institute. Find out more at willowbray.org.